Genesis. I'll read a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 17, and then I'll read uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. In Genesis chapter 17, I want to focus on the name change of Abram and Sarai, and so I want us to see it in the scriptures, and then we'll talk about it in the course of our sermon this morning. So in Genesis 17, um, 5 and 6, I'm going to read, uh, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Then verse 15 and 16 we read, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be, and I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations." Kings of people shall be out of her. Now let's read uh, 18, 1 through, um, actually I'm going to go through 17. 18, 1 through 17, verse, uh, chapter 18. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat, as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself towards the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye may pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant." And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree And they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child, which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son." Then Sarah died, excuse me, then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray again this morning that you would pour out your spirit, compass about us that we might forget the thoughts, cares, concerns, and foolishness of this world and think upon thee, and that you would open this scripture up to us that we might see Christ in the works that 
thou hast done through him and in him to redeem a people unto thyself, that we might eternally fellowship with thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, first, I wanted to, and then build from this, make a correction what I said last week. Last week, I said that in Genesis chapter 17, there were five I wills from God. There's not five I wills. There's actually seven I wills. And so I wanted to set those before us here. Seven, of course, represents the number of God, and it's a number of perfection because it represents God. Um, and so we read in verse 2 where God says, I will make my covenant with thee. And also in verse 2, it's, I will multiply thee exceedingly. In verse 4, thou shalt be a father of many nations. In verse 5, he says, a father of many nations have I made thee. I'm not counting that as one of the I wills. In verse 6, we have two more. I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of thee. In verse 6, kings shall come out of thee. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee. In verse 8, another I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. In verse 8, the most important one of them all, he says, I will be their God. In verse 9, he says, thou shalt keep my covenant therefore. In other words, therefore, because of all these I wills, you're going to keep the covenant and thy seed after thee in their generations. Because of the I wills, Abraham will walk before God and be perfect. Um, in the book of Exodus, you'll find something um, similar when God is talking to Moses and he lays before him all the I wills that God is going to do with respect to having a people unto himself. So we should ever appreciate that we are the fruit of God's work and all of his will that he has done. So we have already noted um, that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. So we appreciate what's written in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. As it applies to Abraham, as it applies to Abraham, it also applies to us. And that's what I want us to appreciate. As we go through the scriptures here, we're reading about the patriarchs and the things that they suffered um, in terms of the trials that were set before them and all of their foils and failures, which I have no trouble seeing in the mirror with respect to my own life. Um, what I appreciate is the promises God made to them and that he got them through the trials and tribulations and they will get to glory. And we certainly know that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Jesus says that. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, um, God is their God. So they are obviously still living. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 shares with us that for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is a gift. The faith that saves us is not your faith. It is the faith that becomes your faith in a possessive sense because it's given unto you. So God gives us the faith to believe on him. That's what he did for Abraham. That's what he does for us. So given all the I wills and the I have and I shall and thou shalt, we can appreciate that Abraham was as God sets before us here, that he is God's workmanship, just as we are God's workmanship. Verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Same is true for Abraham, same is true for us. What fruit we bear to the glory of God all comes from him. It comes from him calling us out of our idolatrous past, 
out of the kingdom of darkness and causing us to walk before him and be perfect in his marvelous kingdom of light. A past, whereas it continues in Ephesians chapter 2, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. A past where we pursued the lusts of our flesh, seeking to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's all Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. It comes from him working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. It comes from him, this walking perfect before him, comes from him directing our hearts and our steps. We will keep his covenant because the Almighty has placed in us himself. And we'll get to that in a little bit here. He has placed us in Christ, whom he gave as the covenant, which we've talked about in the past, who was given as the covenant and keeps the covenant for all of those in him. Now, our deacon read this morning, John chapter 15, and we're going to see things in there that's going to be true in Genesis um, chapter 18. But um, the Lord talks, says in there about how he will love us if we keep his commandments, and then he will make his abode with us. And I appreciate that statement because I know I will keep his commandments because God says I shall keep his commandments, not only in Christ, but you can look at Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, in two ways. You can look at them as prohibitions, or you can look at them as promises. I prefer to look at them as promises. He says in there, thou shall have no other gods before me. I take that as a promise. By virtue of his grace, he has indwelled me and set himself before me so that he is all that I can see. I have no other gods before him because of what work he has done unto me. I will not make, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. I don't have any graven images in what ones I do when I find myself straying, I know that the day will come when I will not have any graven images. I know that the day will come when I will never take the Lord's name in vain. I know the day will come when I will remember the Sabbath day, which is really Christ. I will rest in him eternally. I know the day will come when I will honor my heavenly father and my heavenly mother in that context. Um, and that will never be an issue because I will have put off the flesh and received a glorified body wherein dwells no sin, and none of these will be an issue with me. I shall not kill. I will not commit adultery. I will not steal. I will never bear false witness against my neighbor, and I will never covet anything. I will never look at a woman to lust, coveting another man's wife. I will never covet their car, their manservant, their maidservant, their ox. I will never do any of that, and neither will anybody who's in Christ by virtue of the promises that are in here. And so as he says, walk before me and be thou perfect, we all will do that when we put off the flesh. But in the meantime, we struggle and we have issues, and the Lord knows all of those things here. Um, with respect to bearing fruit, this is something that I want us to see here. Um, there's a difference between what we see in Genesis chapter 17 and what we see in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2 of Genesis chapter um, 17, in verse 2, the Lord says, and that's Jehovah, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And you need to pay attention to that when you're looking in the scriptures here because that is Jehovah, it is God. He says, I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. God says, I will multiply thee exceedingly. In verse 6, the Lord says that he will make Abraham exceedingly fruitful. Now, this is in contrast to what we have in Genesis 1.28. In Genesis 1.28, there we have the Lord says, um, the Lord blessed them and the Lord said unto them, that would be Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply. 
you be fruitful and multiply. But here we see that before the fall, Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply, which they did, and they were. And following the history in the course of man, we see the fruit that men bore when they multiplied on the earth, and that fruit that they bore was evil. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 tells us that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God, with the exception of eight people, destroyed man from off the face of the earth because man was fruitful and multiplied, and that was the fruit that man bore. After the flood, when men begin to multiply again, we see that they again descend into idolatry, and they follow the pattern that is set for us and articulated forth in Romans chapter 1, which we see comes to fruition time and time again throughout the history of man, and we most certainly see it um, bearing evil fruit to this very day. All of these things show what comes out of man when he is estranged from God and he multiplies and bears fruit on his own. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23 says what these are. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery. Well, we saw that in Abraham right off the bat. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, sedition, strife, seditions, heresy, Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, and as I have told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What men bear that fruit do not inherit the kingdom of God. That's to be contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. And the word fruit is singular as opposed to the works plural of man. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So here in Genesis 17, God sets before us a different approach. Rather than telling Abraham, excuse me, Abram to multiply, Jehovah tells him that he, Jehovah, the Almighty, will multiply him and that he, Jehovah, will make Abraham exceedingly fruitful. And this God does after he imparts to Abram something of himself when he changes his name to from Abram to Abraham. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham. That's when he fulfills the promises to make him exceedingly fruitful and to multiply. He does the same thing to Sarah, changing her name from Sarai to Sarah. Now, the parallel to this can be found in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22, we read about when the Lord is with his disciples, and he says unto them, As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Why is he sending his disciples out? Well, so they will be fruitful and multiply in the context of spreading the gospel by which Christians are begotten in Christ. And then verse 22 of John chapter 20, we read, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So he's telling them to be fruitful and multiply in a spiritual context, and he empowers them to do so by virtue of giving them the Holy Ghost. Now, in John 15, which our deacon read earlier, Jesus, who is the Almighty, said that without him, the disciples could do nothing. 
they can bear no fruit. The same is true for us and for Abram. Without God, we can do nothing fruitful, nothing that glorifies God in a positive sense. Now, keep in mind, God was glorified by Pharaoh's um, sinful obstinance. So as sovereign, he is glorified in all things. But in the context of glorifying God in loving obedience and bearing fruit, we can do nothing. In John 15, 5, the Lord teaches, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And the fruit that they bear, he speaks later about how it would be everlasting fruit. So he's talking about fruit that would glorify him in a positive way. So here we have in Genesis chapter 17, Jehovah symbolically imparting something of himself. The letter H, which comes from the uh, Jehovah, his name in the Hebrew, and he adds that letter H to their names. He adds it to Abraham and Sarah, indicative of him breathing out the Spirit upon them like the Lord did, like Jesus did unto his disciples. It says in verse 5 of, verse seven of chapter 17, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. I hope you can appreciate the H is like the breathing out of the Spirit. As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And once having received this, we appreciate that the fruit they bear, Isaac, is of God. That it is God multiplying them through the Holy Ghost and not they themselves through the flesh which they tried when um, Abram, Abram lay with Hagar. Now, scriptures describe Abraham as, quote, good as dead, respecting his strength to father a child, and Sarah as having received strength from God to bear a child, for it had ceased to be with her after the manner of children. So, after the manner of women. So she cannot bear children, and he cannot bear children. So God is imparting... Um, to them the strength to do so, and it's coming from the Spirit of God. So the Lord Jehovah, having given something of himself, will multiply Abraham and Sarah, from which the Scriptures tell us will spring so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and the sand which is by the seashore innumerable, and ultimately Christ Jesus himself will come from the union between those two through Isaac. In like manner, we see in the New Testament Christ telling his disciples that he, Christ Jesus, will build his church, meaning that he will multiply the saints. The Lord takes all of the credit and the glory for that, and he says he will build the church. It is a work of Christ that Christians are begotten through the preaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 1, the first two verses, affirms this. It affirms that it's a work of Christ building his church. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, the Lord says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. I'm telling you what Christ did. And then he says, Until the day in which he was taken up, I chronicled what happened in the book of Luke up until the point where he was taken up. And then now after that, after that point he was taken up, he, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments 
unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus is building his church. He's working through the Holy Ghost, which he has uh, breathed upon and, and poured out upon the disciples. And he's directing them places to go where they will preach the gospel. And of course, he'll give a hearing ear to those whom he has chosen to do so through the preaching of the gospel. So the Lord has empowered his disciples through the Holy Ghost to be fruitful and multiply. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost is poured out upon the disciples who had already received a measure of the Spirit in John chapter 20, verse 22, um, when Christ breathed upon them. So the disciples get a double measure of the Holy Spirit. Um, God's promise to multiply and make Abraham fruitful is, among other things, a promise to build the church. In Galatians 3.29, we read, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we can see the spiritual fulfillment, literally, of what Jesus, um, excuse me, what Jehovah here has said about, I will make you fruitful and multiply. In Galatians, he's telling us that the spiritual seed of that are all Christians, so... God's faithful. He said that he would make him fruitful and multiply, and we see that come to uh, fruition. Um, so all of those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel are the fulfillment of God's unconditional promise to multiply Abraham as the stars of heaven. That kings would come out of Abraham, which we read about in verse 6, speaks, of course, to the various kings that national Israel had throughout their history the most important of which is Christ Jesus, who is the King of kings, in whom we, the saints, are said to be kings and priests. So that multiple kings would come out of Sarah includes not only those of, the, um, of national Israel, the, uh, the fleshy Israel, but also spiritual Israel, because all of spiritual Israel are kings and um, priests in Christ. So from Abraham, we see that there shall come both earthly kings and spiritual kings, which is why the Lord says that from Abraham and Sarah shall come nations, plural, from nations, plural, those in the world and those in Christ, two different nations. From Ishmael, it says in verse 20 that there shall be but one nation, and that would be those in the world of the flesh. Now, I'm speaking in principle here. I'm not saying that God has never taken a, an, somebody that was related to Ishmaelite and translated him from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, but the Lord is setting before us principles here, spiritual principles, which we draw from by reading what things that he does um, with the flesh of people. So again, multiple nations in uh, Sarai, because uh, spiritual and um, literal and in the flesh, uh, but with respect to Ishmael, it just one nation is what the scripture says will come forth. Now, as we move to Genesis chapter 18, I want us to appreciate some of the differences between the relationship between Adam and God and Abraham and God. And later... Lord willing, next week we'll look at the difference in the relationship between Abraham and God and Lot and God. But right now we're just going to look at Abraham, Adam and God and Abraham and God and what things that we might do to facilitate our relationship with God so as to not suffer a sense of estrangement that Lot suffered from. But again, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Now, in chapter 18... Recall that Abraham dwelt in the plains of Mamre. That actually in the Hebrew is oaks of Mamre. So it's a place where there are lots of trees. So he's dwelling in the oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. That comes from Genesis 13, 18. So he's in, he's in Hebron, 
in the Oaks of Mamre. Hebron, as you'll recall, the name means communion, and Mamre means um, fatness or strength. So we can appreciate that we are strengthened through communion with God. Um, we should appreciate that though Abraham, Abraham has at times stumbled in sin and will do so again, he has continued to be in communion with God and make substitutionary offerings to God at the altar. In verse 3 and verse 17 of Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17, 3 and 17, we see that it is upon his face that Abraham receives additional revelation from God. When, he, when God appears to him or speaks to him and he goes down on his face, that is when he is receiving additional revelation from him. And so we should appreciate that he does, in fact, have a reverential fear and humility before God, which indeed we all should have. You want revelation from God? Read the Bible, get on your knees, get on your face, and pray. And that's the methodology by which the Lord will reveal it to you. It has been a short time between Genesis 17 and Genesis 18 that God has visited Abraham and told him that he and Sarah would bear a son whom they would call Isaac. Now, I've no doubt that Abraham has shared that information with his wife, but as the saying goes, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. So we appreciate that our omniscient God knows that Sarah won't believe the testimony of her husband, whose walk of faith she has already witnessed firsthand, God providentially condescends to tell her himself, which he does in verse 10 of chapter 18. And this sets before us a principle by which we can appreciate that revelation comes from God. People can share God's truth with us, but you won't hear it, you won't, it won't work its way down to your heart unless God places that truth there. It must come from God. And my prayer certainly is every Sunday that you're not hearing me from the pulpit, but you're hearing God speak to you from his word through the um, spirit. Now, back to verse 1 in Genesis 18. It opens with Jehovah visiting Abraham on his way to render judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about. And by the way, when you're reading this section, it's best to take chapter 18 and 19 together and pay attention to when it goes from singular to plural and back to singular when you're speaking about the Lord. So it says the Lord appears to him, Jehovah, that's singular, and yet we're going to see that there are three individuals here setting before us the uh, Trinity. Now, keep in mind, Jehovah comes now to where Abram is dwelling and we have to keep in mind here, though they're not mentioned here, that Hagar and um, Ishmael are running around the camp. They are still there. They are Abraham, excuse me, um, Hagar and, and uh, Ishmael. They are the fruit of Abraham's sin. Hagar, no doubt, came from Egypt, where Abraham had denied that Sarah was his wife, fearing that God could not preserve his life, as would be necessary to fulfill his promise to multiply him. And Ishmael was birthed because Abraham and his wife, with whom he is one flesh, thought that God couldn't multiply him through Sarai. So here we are in Genesis 18 with Abraham sitting in the door of his, of his tent in the heat of the day. It's the heat of the day. When Abraham sees the three men, we read in verse 2, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself towards the ground and said, 
My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for wherefore are ye come to your servant? And they said, So do as thou hast said. Well, I hope you can appreciate how things have changed since Adam walked with God. When Adam walked with God, he did so in the cool of the day, but in a fallen world, the world is not so comfortable a place. Things have changed dramatically since the fall. The effects of sin and God's curse upon it have taken their toll and made things rather unpleasant. Abraham offers to wash their feet and give them rest under the tree to prepare a meal for them, all very hospitable, And this hospitality is well received by the Lord. And this sets before us an important distinction between Adam and Abraham in their relationship with God in light of their sins. When Adam was sought by God after his sin, the external evidence of which was his clothing of fig leaves, what did he do? In fear, he hid himself from the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. Here... Abraham, with the fruit of his sin running around the camp in the persons of Hagar and Ishmael, he runs to God, as we all should do. And we will see later, Abraham stands under the tree next to the Lord. And Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16 affirms this point about how we are bidden to come to the Lord. It says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us therefore, therefore because of what the Lord has done for us, therefore because the Lord has purged our conscience of sin, has washed us from sin, therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are are told by God to boldly come before the throne of grace, by virtue of the work that Christ has done. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Abraham at the altar in Hebron, where he's been in communion with the Lord, no doubt kept short accounts with the Lord respecting his sins. And in light of his conduct, we see that he has an appreciation of God's forgiveness, which I hope we all do. Adam, when he hid from the Lord, had not yet seen the lamb slain, nor was himself covered by that whose blood was shed due his sin. Abraham, we know, has been justified by grace. He has now, represented by God changing his name, received something of God, the Holy Spirit. And now, being a partaker of the divine nature, sees the Lamb of God slain and applied to him, and so by grace has had his conscience purged from sin, which is why he runs to God and not from God, as all men will do on that great day of the Lord when he comes to judge the world. That's Revelation 6, chapter 6, verses 15 and 17. Men will run from the Lord when he comes. Here, Abraham runs to the Lord. Um, In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, 
it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, and this is contrasting it with the offerings of animals on the altars, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What we read in Hebrews 9.14, we see take place with respect to Abraham. He runs to God. His conscience has been purged of sin. And what does he do there? He serves God, literally. In verses 4 through 8, we talked about how he comes to them, and he washes their feet, he gives them rest, and he serves them a meal. So it's interesting to note from this point that with the exception of offering his beloved son Isaac upon the altar of God, we don't find Abraham at an altar anymore, nor as a partaker of the divine nature should we. We who have received the... um, our partake, we, we who have received the Holy Ghost and are partakers of the divine nature would never um, participate in a, an animal sacrifice unto the Lord. There's no reason for it. God has done away with all of that in his son, Jesus Christ, and that has been applied to us. We appreciate that and we understand that, and we would never go back to the uh, letter of the law. There's no reason for it. So we see that shift here also in Genesis 18 is that we're not going to see the altar anymore because he's, he's now a partaker of the divine nature. He's been covered by the blood of the Lamb of God, which is Christ. His conscience has been purged of dead works. He has received the spirit of adoption, whereby he cries, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God bearing witness with his spirit that he is a son of God. Isn't that wonderful to see all these things in Genesis when we're looking at Abraham? Because all of these things are written as they apply to us. What's good for you and me is good for Abraham. God doesn't change the gospel. It never changed at any point in history. It's the same. And these truths that we're seeing manifest themselves in the life of Abraham are true for us that we read about in the epistles. So with his meeting with the Lord here, we find the Lord at rest. This is verse 4. Under the tree, eating the meal offered, all of which are anticipatory of the cross and the church. All of these things that we see set forth before are anticipatory of the cross, the work of Christ, and the church. The tree, you will recall, recall, is not an indirect reference to the cross. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. So there's a direct reference to the cross here in terms of what is set before us. And these things are to be understood collectively, And singularly, as God, Jehovah, is inferred from the language of what things that they say here. In verse 1, it says that the Lord Jehovah appeared unto Abraham. We're speaking about the Trinity. In verses 5 and 7, they speak with one voice. That would be very interesting to sit at a table like that before the Lord. And it says, they said this and they said that. They're all speaking with one voice. In verse 10, the voice is singular. And verse 17, it says the Lord Jehovah speaks as the one who will destroy Sodom. In verse 21, he says that he will go down to Sodom. In verse 22, we see that two go down while the Lord Jehovah remains on high with Abraham. Now, I've made this kind of a reference before, you know, in a way to be provocative and that we would think about what is written here as indeed being every word of God, that a copy editor would have been all over this. How can it be three and how can it be one? Why is it plural here and singular over there? Why do you say one will go down and yet two go down? Um, And so you need to appreciate that God is setting before us the the, um, Trinity here. In Genesis chapter 19, 
verse 1, we see that two angels, which in the Hebrew means ambassadors, go into Sodom, where they too speak with one voice, until verse 18, where Lot makes a request of one of them to allow him to escape to the little city of Zoar. So when you get to this point, apparently there is no further need of witness against Sodom, um, but only for the one of the two that originally came down, and though there were three up in the mountains, remain. So keep in mind that what it says in the law, that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, so every matter be determined with respect to a capital offense. So we don't need that second witness anywhere anymore, so off he goes, and we just have one remaining in Sodom. In verse 21 and 22 of Genesis chapter 19, it is a singular person that tells Lot that he cannot do anything until Lot gets to Zoar that he cannot do that which is ascribed to the Lord Jehovah back up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 17, and verses 23 through 32. In verse 24, we learn that the Lord Jehovah reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, that which one of the angels said that he would do. So you can appreciate how intertwined all of this is with respect to the Trinity that we have but one God in three persons. Um, so you should appreciate that um, the Lord's visit with his friend Abraham is that the Trinity can be found throughout the Bible everywhere, the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. The three persons of the Godhead are all involved with all that is required to make us vessels of honor to conform us to the image and likeness of God. Now, some say, endeavoring to simplify the distinction in the persons of the Godhead, they will say, well, that's the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. And you can apply that to certain places in the Scripture, but the more you study the Scripture, the more you can appreciate the overlap that you will find in the offices of the Trinitarian God. It was said by God back in Genesis 1, and God there is from the word Elohim, which is plural, let us, plural, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The us obviously being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They all three work together to make us in the image and likeness of God. Over in, Je in Acts chapter 2, verse 28, uh, we are told that it is, was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Christ was delivered up to be crucified by wicked hands. Determinate counsel, determined by all three of them. It was the will of all three of them that Christ would be deli uh, delivered up and crucified. So here in Genesis 18 and 19, we see three individually speaking individuals, redundant, acting with one accord. When God was manifest in flesh in the person of Christ, we are told that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Christ, when he spoke of himself, said that he and the Father were one, that he came to finish his Father's work, and that he came not to do his own will, but that of the Father. So, of a truth, when we read scriptures, um, there might be an expression of separate wills, like when Jesus prays in the garden and says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. We should appreciate that their wills are ever but one. They are always of one mind, and they are always about the same work to make man in the image and likeness of God. And this they most certainly will do. When it's all said and done, we will be in the image 
and likeness of God, having received now an earnest deposit of the Spirit. Come a day when we put off this flesh and sin uh, will be in us no more. All of these things I'm sharing with you at, right here at Genesis 18 revolve around the cross and what's set forth before us here under the tree. It is there where the three rest, three persons of the Godhead rest, and receive that which comforts or stays in the Hebrew, strengthens their hearts. That which is set before them represents Christ and the kingdom of heaven inclusive of the church. These, what they're fed is very interesting. The calf, if you transliterate it from the Hebrew, means son of the herd, son of the herd. That obviously equals Christ offered for the sins of his people. The three measures of fine meal represent the kingdom of heaven, and it is the woman, Sarah, who is told in verse 6 to quickly prepare the three measures of fine meal. And we know that from scriptures, beginning with Eve as a type throughout the whole Bible, the woman often represents the church, the bride of Christ. It is she who's told to prepare the three measures of meal. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, the Lord says, he's teaching his people with a parable, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. It's the woman who puts this leaven into the bread. You'll recall, with one exception, all the offerings, of the meat offerings, which is a meal, uh, a grain offering, are made without leaven. One exception. So here in Matthew 13, 33, he's likened it unto the kingdom of heaven, where a woman takes three measures of meal and puts in a little leaven. Leaven, you will recall, leavens the whole lump. And we are admonished in the scripture to purge out the old leaven. Because leaven, again, we are taught by scriptures, represents false doctrine. It represents hypocrisy. It represents malice and wickedness. And you will find... Uh, as I said, the one exception to putting leaven in, uh, in the meal, in the meat offering, comes on the day of Pentecost. That offering is to be made with leaven. And what happened on the Pentecost, that's the, what is referred to as the birth of the church. We know that the church goes all the way back to Adam, but that's that is referred to as the birth of the church. In Leviticus 23, 17, um, the Lord tells them specifically to put leaven in that offering. So the Lord is anticipating the church and what sin that we will have yet in our flesh when we come together. So here we are under the tree which alludes to the cross and the offering of Christ, um, that which anticipates the church with the impurities of the flesh, which we, the church, bring in and which we let in to the church, false doctrine, hypocrisy, malice, and wickedness. And that's why we can appreciate that the outward church is in such a mess because of what we bring into the church and what things we let into the church. You recall in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul warns about that. He says, Grievous wolves shall enter in and come from yourselves, which will not spare the flock. And so we are the ones who create the trouble and bring problems into the church. And so knowing all of this, because God knows how everything is going to go, he knows what a mess the church is going to be, yet he died for us and shed his blood for us to uh, purge us. We appreciate that here he is with all of these things set before him. He is served by Abraham. He is at rest, and his heart stayed and strengthened. I'm speaking of Jehovah's at rest, and his heart is stayed. From here, we see that the men rise up, and for Abraham's benefit and for our benefit, the Lord asks the question, 
Verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? So we're going to develop this more next week, but what I want us to appreciate as we close this morning is this. Abraham is a friend of God. Not a coincidence, there are three places in Scripture where he is said to be a friend of God. Here we are. There are three persons of the Godhead with him who are, um, are being served. He's told, we are told three times that he's a friend of God. In spite of all of his issues, in spite of all of Abram's problems, the ones he's had in the past, the ones he's presently struggling with, and the ones that he will deal with in the future, God comes to him, is served by him, and is refreshed by him, and God makes his will known to Abraham. He does the same thing to us. He, who is the Almighty, says to his disciples in John 15, 15, henceforth, I call you not servants. Abraham's been serving him. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things which I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. God has given us his holy scriptures. He's given us the Holy Ghost. And between the two of them, we have the revealed will of God. Those things that are hidden from the world are not hidden from us. God has revealed them to us, his friends. Verse 13 of John 15, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Our loving Savior laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for his friend Abraham. Knowing all of our sins individually and collectively as a church, for the joy that was set before Christ, the joy of eternal fellowship, he endured the cross and despised the shame of our sin. And what things we see manifold are manifest in God's relationship with how he works with the patriarchs, how he works with his chosen people. We see his patience and his love. We should see that in our lives as well. Um, Spurgeon had a wonderful um, contemplation. I can't think of the better I can't think of the word right now. He had a wonderful contemplation the other day when he talks about how we as Christians whine about all the trials and the troubles and the struggles that we have been through. And he says, well, we're not focusing on the right thing. We need to focus on the word through because he has gotten us through them. And so we need to appreciate the things that we have had in our life and how the Lord has ever been faithful to us and gotten us through them. All of these trials, trials and struggles that we see Abraham dealing with, they're all of his making. I know that the Lord permitted those trials, and he only gave him one, the one of offering up his son. But nevertheless, all these other issues that Abraham deals with are because of him and because of his um, failure to believe in the promises of the Lord. In like manner, the same thing is true with us. We engage in activities before we consult the Lord. We do what things seem right in our own eyes and not bring it to the Lord first. Prayerfully consider what he would have us to do. And nevertheless, the Lord has gotten us through them. So... The Lord has um, kept us. He will keep us. Uh, we will get to, to glory. And so the issues we see in here with respect to the lives of the patriarchs, we see in our lives um, as well. Whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our patience, were written for our learning, that we, through the comfort of scriptures, might have hope. We look at their lives. We see what things the Lord did for them. And we know that he will do the same um, for us. Individually, collectively, we have our issues, but he died for each one of those people that he chose to be conformed to the image of his son. And the day will come when all the old leaven will be purged out 
and goes into the grave with our flesh. And with our glorified bodies or in our glorified bodies, we will sit and sup with our Lord in glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.